0: Um, good morning everyone. As I said, my name is David here uh, teaching under the leadership of Pastor Peter. <laughs> He's laughing in the back of that. I don't know what that means. Um, today we're going to continue under our study of God's extra-Trinitarian love. That is, God's love in us. Um, the love God has for us and the love God places in us that we pour out to others as we relate to them. And We saw last week when we looked at 1 John 4, um, that those are two, really two sides of the same coin. That um, he, we had this clear picture of there are really only two options. That those who know God and are loved by God will necessarily become loving. Just like the God who is love. And that those who don't love show they don't know God. Um, that there's really only these two options as we go to relate to others. And that was the picture of love we saw in John. This morning, we're going to look at the picture of love we get from Paul, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. Um, and yes, I am aware that Lakeview has been going through 1 Corinthians 13 for the past three years. So, um, but we believe the word of God is inexhaustible. And so hopefully I have some new thoughts this morning that, that will sound different than the um, excellent messages we've heard on 1 Corinthians from the pulpit Sunday morning. Um, just as an a introduction, who has heard 1 Corinthians 13 used at a wedding? Been to a wedding where they read 1 Corinthians 13. Who had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your own wedding? Anybody remember? I couldn't tell you. I don't have... I think my mind was pretty overwhelmed that day. I have no memory of what was said at my wedding at all. I don't know what Matt was talking about. Just didn't... I didn't record. Um... What, what do you think of when you think of First Corinthians thirteen in the context of a wedding? Right? Do, do you begin to think of a a husband learning to um, push down pride and arrogance, not to be rude as he relates to his bride, or a bride learning to be patient as she um, bears with and loves her husband right? when, when you think of First Corinthians thirteen is what comes to mind love within human relationships, a human picture of love, right? In some ways, that would fit the context of what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about, right? If, if you read the whole chapter in context, you find Paul is correcting some problems in the human relationships at the church in Corinth, right? There's, it's clear that there's been some sort of overemphasis uh, and misuse of spiritual gifts, that the people in the church in Corinth are using the gifts of God in a manner that is inconsistent with the character of God, and so there's dysfunction in these human relationships that Paul is writing to correct. But I think sometimes we hear that corrective tone, and we jump right to assume that Paul is just giving a command, a description or a list of things that we need to do as we relate to other people. But did you, did you notice, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, Paul doesn't actually tell them to do anything in the whole chapter. There's not one command in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not until you get to 1 Corinthians 14.1 that Paul tells the people reading this to do anything, that they are to pursue love. They're to pursue love in light of everything he's just said. But what did he just say? What was it he doing in 1 Corinthians 13 if he's not giving a command? Well, if you go one verse earlier, you find out 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 20, 31. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, he says he is showing them a still more excellent way. He's giving them a picture of what love looks like. He's showing them a description of love and he wants them to see before they go and do anything. That's what I hope we can see this morning, that, that 1 Corinthians 13 is a picture of love. And I, I think that's helpful because, because if I just read 1 Corinthians 13 as a list of things to do, if I kind of read under the just do it methodology, I just need to be patient. I just need to not be arrogant. That works for me, I don't know about you, until maybe 10 a.m.? <laughs> Right, like that's, I, I just don't have much in me to just do it, right? If we're gonna get to the description of love that endures all things. What comes to mind when you think endures all things? What situations in your life require endurance? And what is it going to take for love to show up in that situation? And I'm gonna need more than a list of do's if I'm going to have a love that endures all things, that hopes all things, that bears all things. But that's not what First Corinthians 13 is. It's a picture that's going to help us, motivate us, clarify why we are able to love in all situations. In some ways, First Corinthians 13 is like a car commercial, right? You've seen these car commercials where, uh, you know, for Lexus, right? You've got this picture of, of Matthew McConaughey driving through some beautiful part of the country giving some sort of vague existential thoughts of, about life. What's that commercial doing? Right, it's saying, "Don't you want this? Don't you want to be like Matthew McConaughey driving through the wilderness?" Right? Or a truck commercial. Right, truck commercials what they're always pulling something heavy, something ridiculous, right? Like some sort of giant steel beam, a boat that's way too big for this truck. I say trucks are for The working man, for the people who get things done, who are tough like this. Don't you want this? Go pursue that truck. Go pursue that Lexus. Go pursue whatever, right? Those are silly examples. Those cars I don't think are all that different than any other car. Um, But I think that's roughly what Paul is doing. He's trying to give us a picture that says, don't you want this? Don't you want to be like this? Don't you want to experience this? And then at the end, he's going to say, then go and pursue love. So what is the picture that Paul's giving us in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, I'm, I'm going to go through this chapter uh, backwards. Um, and what I'm hoping to do there is to kind of get past our familiarity with the chapter. Right? You've heard this at weddings. You've thought of it in context of human relationships. I'm going to start at the end. And what I hope that does is help us see that this really is a picture Paul is trying to get us to see that's different than any love you've seen just in your own human experience. So let's start here. 1 Corinthians 13:8. Going to read to the end. Paul starts here. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. What Paul is showing us here is that love outlasts everything. Love is the end at which we are aiming, and it is the thing we are hoping for. Love outlasts every activity in this life, even good activities God has given us to do that's so easy for us to get caught up in. It was so easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day things, the good things even, that God has given us to do that sometimes I think we forget what it's all for. And so Paul is trying to give us a picture here that raises our eyes and says, remember why you're doing this. Remember what you're after. All of this activity that you're doing, it's going to end. And when it ends, what's going to be left is the love that never ends. This is a helpful reminder for me. I I think of of teaching is the context that comes most readily to mind here. It's very easy for me to get caught up not only in the activity of teaching, but even in the identity of a teacher. Of someone I, I think of myself as this is what I'm after. I want to be a teacher. I want to be someone who's good at this, who's who's worked through how to give good illustrations, who's worked through how to look at a text and figure out how, what it means in a situation, how to explain it to people. It's helpful for me to remember that's going to end. One day, none of you are going to need me to teach you anything. You're going to see more in that day than I could ever tell you here. What's going to be left though? What will I be when I am no longer a teacher? I will still be a beloved son of God. That will never end. And I need to remember that what I'm after here, even this morning, is a love that never ends. That's what frames this whole thing. What, whatever activities you are caught in that God has had you doing. If you're, you're building homes that are um, serving your family and your neighbors. You're, you're performing acts of service. You're going to St. Charles to put r- blue tarps on roofs or serving the nature of the needs around you. You're caught up in good activities, building businesses, building um, um, just activities and traditions for your children. Whatever good activities you're caught up in, they will all end. Every achievement you get in this life is just going to be a crown to lay down at the feet of Christ in that day. But when you lay down the crowns of the achievements that you have done, you will keep the love that God has for you in that day. That will never End. That's the picture of love that we are aiming at. This love outlasts suffering. Right? Maybe your experience this morning isn't one of activity and achievement, it's just one of difficulty. And what you're aware of in this moment, what overwhelms your mind is is the problems and the suffering and the hardship of this life. Love's going to outlast that that suffering one day will end. I forgot to put this in your notes, but I think a good illustration of this is a song written by Andrew Peterson. It's called After the Last Tear Falls, and he's just reflecting on the reality that suffering ends. Let me give you some of the lines from that song. It says, "After the last tear falls, after the last secrets told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone," after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard. He didn't write that song this year. There is love, 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 love. There is love, love, love. Love, there is love. I think we need to remember that. This is what we are after is love. Sometimes I like to imagine what eternity in the new earth might be like. And I'll caveat this by, this is speculation. We really don't know a whole lot of what it's going to look like. But I, I'd like to do that, and, and I'll just add my, for myself at the end, I don't know if it's going to be anything like that, but it'll be at least that good. I think that helps me imagine what we're all aiming at, to lift my eyes from the activities and the difficulties of today and say, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be at least as good as let me give you an example. It's going to be at least as good as if this group here, rather than meeting here every Sunday to learn and to um, find more of the story of what God has told us and more of the things that we need to know to live. Instead of gathering for teaching, we gathered for um, a perfected worship and prayer night every Sunday. And we came together um, for just an unhurried time of feasting and fellowship. You had all the time in the world to talk with the different people here, to enjoy the things they were talking about. People brought food from recipes that they'd been perfecting over centuries. Now, can you imagine a casserole or a pie dish that, that's been perfected for 500 years? We would all come together for that. We'd have songs in the end, um, Maybe Pharaoh would lead us in the song that he's been writing for the last um, 12 years. We just enjoy singing that. And in the center of all of that enjoyment and celebration would be the person of Jesus Christ himself, laughing the loudest in every conversation, complimenting every dish, enjoying every song. And at the end, we wouldn't get up for Peter or for Keith to lead us in some thoughts, but Jesus would get up and he would retell the story of how he brought each one of us here so that we could experience his love forever. I don't know if eternity is going to be anything like that, but it'll be at least that good. This is what it's all for, and we cannot make too much of this. The love that never ends. This is the more excellent way. This is the greatest thing in all of eternity. This is the aim of everything that we are doing and we need to remember that picture as we go and live. We need to see that before we go to do anything. And what is that love like? Let me back up one section and let's see. This is a description not of the things that we need to do, but of that love. That love to make us want that Things. Do you see that differently? That's a description of the love that never ends before it's telling us to do anything. And this is the pattern I want to do for the rest of this week and next week. I want to walk through each of these descriptions and before we think, what does it look like for us to do that? I want us to think, where have I seen that love? Where have I seen a love that is patient. And only then consider what does it look like for me to pursue that love. And I hope that, that what that will do is that the next time we read this chapter, it won't feel like a, a burden weighing us down. But it will set our hearts on fire with the goodness of what is offered to us. So, love is patient. Where have we seen a love that is patient? What has that looked like? Well, patience always implies some sort of offense, right? When you think of patience, you don't think of newlyweds, usually, Uh, right? Because newlyweds haven't yet figured out that the other person is annoying, right? (laughs) For they're still in that honeymoon phase. There is no offense, Right, they're just enjoying everything that person does. It's about six months, a year later, right, you start to realize, you always leave your toothbrush there, don't you? You never wash that dish in the morning. You always, you never, right? That starts to come in later, and then you need patience. Right? Patience always has some sort of offense in view. And when the Bible talks about God's patience towards us, It always has our sin in view. And have you ever wondered um, why God is sometimes seemingly slow to respond to problems in the world? Right? Or just as you read through the Old Testament, you watch God deal with these knuckleheads and it just seems like, are you seeing this? Are you just going to let this go on? Right? Abraham, lies about his wife being his sister because he's afraid of what's going to happen, doesn't believe God's going to protect him. Not once, but twice. The first time it's like, okay, yeah, you know, I guess you're learning. The second time, well, I, again, what are you doing? Right, you see the Israelites come out of the land of Egypt and just whine and complain the whole way to the promised land are you seeing this God? Why are you letting this go on? The, the kings of Israel start off pretty bad and get worse. Right? There's one brief moment where you think it might work out and then that king messes up too. Why does God just let all of this go on? Why don't we just end all of this nonsense? It's because love is patient. Peter, the apostle Peter, reflects on this in 2 Peter 3 9, when he's considering why God seems to be taking so long to return. All right, we thought he was coming back soon. We thought all this was going to be over. Why is he so slow to fulfill that promise? This is what Peter tells us The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Why is God slow to end sin? Because love gives time to reach repentance. We said last week that if love was not driving the story of history, the story of the Bible would end in Genesis 3. Adam would eat the fruit, that would be it. But God doesn't. He waits. He doesn't immediately kill Adam like you might have thought he was going to because he's giving the time needed to unfold his plan leading to repentance. I think Peter knew something about the patience of God when he wrote this. Right. This is the man who's always putting his foot in his mouth after he says something brash with the disciples. This is the man who within 24 hours of standing up and arrogantly declaring all of these might fall away but I never will denies three times that he even knows his Lord but then experiences the patience of God in the gentle dignified restoration that he receives when Jesus comes to him after the resurrection I think he understands the patient love of God And I am glad that I have received the patient love of God. That God bears with all of my petulant, fearful prayers. That he is not quick to punish me for walking into what I know will be a foolish, frivolous pattern again. That he is giving me time to become the man he is leading me to be. That he is slow to demand perfection. That's what it means for love to be patient. What does it look like then for us to pursue love that is patient in our lives? What does it look like for us as we deal with a confusing and conflicted world that demands things be made right now? What does it look like for us to pursue love that is patient? I'm just going to leave that there. What about love that is kind? Love is patient. Love is kind. Well, kindness is in some ways just a, a different version of patience. Right? If patience is a gentle response to offense, then kindness is sort of the same response without the offense. Right? Kindness, you might say, is a generous movement towards another person's need. One aside on all of these characteristics these are all characteristics that are specifically describing the extra Trinitarian love of God. Right? Th- these are not descriptions of how God loves within himself. It's only when the love that is within God encounters a fallen humanity that you need to get love that is patient, or love that is not arrogance, or love that bears all things, right? You don't see the Father needing to be patient with the Son, or you don't see the Holy Spirit having to hold it in and not mouth off again in arrogance towards the Father, right? That's, that's not happening. <laughs> These are all descriptions of how God's love looks when it encounters fallen humanity. If you were going to think there was one exception to that, you might think kindness is the exception. Like, wouldn't you say that the father is kind to the son? But I don't think so. And maybe I'm splitting words here. But, but kindness, I think, implies a sort of need. Right? Kindness is what you do when you share your coat with a little girl who didn't bring one on a cold day. Because she needs one. And there's no need within the Trinity, right? God's crazy about the son. His love for him is like the white hot nuclear fusion happening within the son. He loves everything about him. He's quick to raise him on high and declare all the goodness of what he is, but but none of that is undeserved. The son really is that great. Everything the father feels about the son is right and fitting and true. There's not filling any needs within the son think of it this way. When we love God, we aren't kind to God, right? That just sounds wrong, right? He doesn't need our kindness. He wants our wholehearted adoration, our wholehearted obedience, but he doesn't need our our kindness. That's just the wrong word. We need the kindness of God when his love encounters our need and our weakness and our sin. That's what kindness looks like. Listen to how Luke describes kindness. Luke 6, 32 through 36. See see what the pattern is or where kindness shows up here. Luke says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Right? This is advocating our kindness to those who don't deserve it. Our generosity to those who can't repay. Because that's what God is like. Because he loves those who don't deserve it and can't repay it in his kindness. It's undeserved generosity where there is weakness and need. And that's how God has loved us. He's not only slowly and patiently bearing with our offenses, but he is quick to move towards us where we need him. I think it's easy sometimes for us to forget that God is kindness. When you've been walking with him for a long time and you've you've begun this process of sanctification, I think you can get so tired of your own sin so tired that you walked into that again, so tired that you can't seem to fix this problem, that you begin to assume, maybe God feels that way about me too. Right, I know he's patient with me, but isn't he getting tired of this too? Dane Orland wrote a book this year called Gentle and Lowly that's, that's written exactly to that audience. If that's how you feel in any way, this book was written for you this is how he describes why he wrote the book on the, the first page. He said, this book is written for that increasing suspicion that God's with, patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we have deeply disappointed him. How are you tempted to think that way? Do, do you feel that way anywhere in, in your bones? <laughs> in your experience of yourself. And to that, Dane Ortland writes. He writes this idea throughout the whole book. This is just a sample of what he says. He says, The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. And if that seems wrong to you, as it seemed wrong to me when I first read it, I had to think if that was really right, but he goes through the way Jesus encounters people. Right, look at how he moved towards sinners. He was known as one who would spend time with those considered sinners and the outcasts he 's always healing people where they have needs. He brings children who can do nothing for him and is Telling, tells his disciples you should not send them away. He tells a story that says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a sheep that was lost and it rejoices more over the one sheep that was lost and then found than the 99 sheep who never left. That feels wrong to me too, doesn't it? But this is how we have experienced the love of God, his kindness moving towards where we have need. Our sin evokes His love. He is not tired with us. He has not related to us on an exchange where we can give back what He has given us. Where we have need is where we find His love. That's what brings it forth. What would it look like for us to pursue a love That moves towards need, that doesn't demand repayment, that shows up strongest where there is sin and weakness. What does it look like in your life? Where are there weaknesses and needs and sins that love would move towards? That's the love we have been given. What does it look like for us to pursue that love? We'll finish the rest of those descriptions next week, I think. Um, but, but do you see how this pattern changes the way you read First Corinthians 13? That when you look first to see, where have I seen this? Before you ask, how do I do this? It does at least two things. One, it raises the bar for what love is, right? Sometimes we, we think about love in our life and we're, we're kind of we're kinda looking for loopholes, right? We're asking the question, yeah, but, but who is my neighbor, right? Like how, how far does that go? How many times do I have to forgive that again, right? Th- this is our nature. But when you look at the love we have received, love that is patient, love that in kindness moves towards weakness and need, there's no loopholes. You're not even really looking for those anymore. And you're not looking for those anymore because you realize you're not just going to have to muster this love up out of yourself. This is the second thing it does. It helps you see where you get the strength to do this in the first place. I don't need to find this love within myself. I need to see that I've received this love already. And I will continue to receive this love for eternity as I go to pursue it. This love does not come from us. It comes from God's Spirit put in us. Right? These are the fruit of the Spirit. You notice all three of these characteristics are listed in Galatians five, twenty-two and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the description of love in First Corinthians 13 makes you feel inadequate to love that way, you are. But the Spirit in you is not. That's where the strength to do this comes from in the first place. These are not just checklists of things we need to do. The fruit of the Spirit, right, is not a checklist of all of these things are things you need to do. This is a picture of what produced within you when you do one thing. You let the Spirit lead you. That's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5. You don't need a list of rules. We don't need the Old Testament law to give us all the checklist of everything we're supposed to do. That's what he's arguing against. What do you do? Just be led by the Spirit. And all of this will result in you. This is the multifaceted picture of of what God is like that's going to be produced in you. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a list of attributes that you need to make sure are in your life. You don't need to go through and make sure, am I being patient? Am I being kind? Was I rude yesterday? That's not how it works. This is a picture of what you've been given. You're not supposed to be overwhelmed by the to-do list you're supposed to be overwhelmed by how much is offered to you. And then seeing that, all you do is one thing. Pursue what you've been given. Pursue love. That's it. See it. Let it overwhelm you. Let it draw up affections for God form you. Let it give you hope that this is going to last for eternity. Everything else that's going to result in this life, it's just a blink. Love never ends. And let that motivate you to be led by the Spirit to pursue love. Next week we'll continue and conclude going through the rest of these descriptions and, and I hope what that does again is just, just we can come and meditate again on what has been done for us. And then ask ourselves, what does it look like to pursue love? Thank you this week.